I have to, to warn you at the beginning of this sermon that in about three minutes' time, I'm going to ask you to talk to the person sitting next to you. Um, if you want to move and sit next to somebody, fine, do that now. Don't dig them with your elbow, Stuart. <laughs> if you don't want to talk to the person sitting next to you, that's also fine. Just turn things over in your own mind. So anyway, what you want to play that, that's fine by me. In about three minutes' time, this is going to happen. I thought I would warn you. Now, to begin with, I'm going to describe two common different life situations. And if you've experienced either of them, try and remember how you felt. If you've been fortunate enough not to experience either, try and imagine how you might feel if these were your situations. And here's the first. Friends have called at your house and they've told you that somebody dear to you, who you thought was actually quite safe, has just died in upsetting circumstances. Now, how would you feel, or how did you feel, if that happened to you? The second probably hasn't happened to that many people, but let's try it anyway. You've just done something that in itself was very good, but your action reminded you of an old temptation that you had to struggle really hard to overcome in the past. How did that leave you feeling? How did that leave you feeling? Well, when our story opens, the one that Sandra read to us, those emotions you've just revisited or imagined for the first time were exactly what Jesus was feeling. It's very hard, isn't it, to imagine the inside of Jesus' feelings, but we know that those two feelings were with him when our story opens. He'd just been told, hadn't he, that his dear cousin John the Baptist had been murdered by Herod. And this had caused him to want to go to a quiet place with his disciples so that he could grieve in private. However, as you know, the population of Galilee found out where he was going, and instead of being a quiet place, <coughs> he ended up having to feed 5,000 of them, which was precisely what he had refused to do in the temptations in the wilderness, wasn't it? Do you remember the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And because he had fed them, John tells us in his account of the feeding of the 5,000 that the people wanted to make Jesus king. Do you remember the third temptation? All this, the kingdoms of the world, I will give you, the devil said, if you will bow down and worship me. So after the 5,000 had been sent on their way, Jesus, who by now really needed complete solitude and prayer to wrestle with these two problems, over again the temptations of getting to power and the grief at John's death, he sent the disciples on ahead in the boat to cross over the lake and he went up into the hills that rise up from the lakeside. But it's not an ideal evening for boating, is it? As the disciples, to their cost, find out. They have to row directly into the wind. And the lake is about five miles across the point where they started. And they row hard for about three or four hours until four o'clock in the morning. 
And by this time, they've only gone about three and a half miles, and I guess they are cold and they are weary. Now, when I was writing this sermon, I suddenly realised they weren't hungry, because I expect they had those 12 basketfuls of scraps on board. Do you remember those that were collected after the 5,000 were fed? So they weren't hungry, but they were cold and they were weary. Then, through the blackness of the night, one person catches a glimpse of some pale outline moving across the water. What can it be? Is it mist? Or perhaps the trick of the moonlight that shines from time to time through the wind-blown cloud cover up above? But no, it's not mist. It has form. And as it comes nearer, he can see it's a person. He calls to the others to look, and they all see, emerging from the darkness, the figure of a man walking over the waves towards the boat. The rowers stop rowing and watch, mesmerised, as the figure gets nearer, and they see that it is Jesus. But is it? Perhaps it's a ghost or a phantom. Great, I can imagine a great wailing cry of fear rising from the boat to join the moaning of the wind and the agitated splashing of the waves. And then comes a much-loved and familiar voice calling over the noise of the wind, Take courage, it is I. Be not afraid. Then Peter shouts, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, says Jesus. And in a twinkling, Peter hops out of the boat and begins to walk towards Jesus. He feels his feet beginning to get wet, and the wind whips his face, and he can't see the boat anymore, and a wall of darkness surrounds him. In front he sees Jesus, but is he real? Doubt hits him like an express train, doesn't it, in an instant, and he begins to sink down into the water. Lord, save me, he screams, as the cold water rises up his body. And Jesus reaches out his hand and he catches him and there he is standing on the water again. Oh, little faith, says Jesus, why did you doubt? And they both climb into the boat and the folk in the boat, we are told, worship God, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now, apart from the birth and death stories in the Gospels, I think it's fair to say that this story is one of the most familiar in the New Testament, isn't it? Most of us have grown up knowing it, and in the secular world, there are cartoons about it and jokes like this one we see. Mum, that man is walking on the water, and she's so busy, she just said, oh, that's nice, dear, as they swim along underneath a pair of feet going across the Lake of Galilee. You find, you find, do, don't you? Even secularists make jokes about walking on water. So here's a question for you. When you read or hear this story, what is the one thing that always grabs you about it? The one thing that really stands out? When you read this story or you hear it, what is the one thing that has always grabbed you about it? And can you just turn to the person sitting next to you and say, I always think so-and-so when I hear this story. I'll just give you a second to talk to the person sitting next to you. What is the one thing, maybe lots of different things, but what's the one thing you think about?
was too su- that was much too successful, wasn't it? Obviously, you've thought about this story very, very heavily over the years. Now, in the rest of this sermon, I'm going to lay down the points that I feel the Holy Spirit would have us look at from this story. Um, but if there's any over the years that you've just been chatting about that I don't cover, come and share them with me at the end of the service. That would be a great blessing to all our hearts. Obviously, there were lots of things going on in your minds, weren't there? That was lovely. Now, I expect that many of you made some comment about the character of Peter in this story, didn't you? Yes, I can see heads nodding. The character of Peter. Peter was an amazing man, wasn't he? Let's imagine for a moment what he actually did. He got out of a fishing boat in the middle of the night, in a storm, onto the surface of the sea, convinced he could walk on the water just because Jesus appeared to be there. Now, would you have done that? No. I wouldn't have done it either. You can never ever accuse Peter of being anything less than really courageous, can you? However, the very thing he asked Jesus shows that even he had his doubts about the ghost-like form and the voice. What was it he said? Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. He's testing Jesus here, isn't he? So he gets out and he begins to walk towards Jesus. And then the Bible says he saw the wind and I guess he felt the waves splashing up against him. And then he begins to sink. And then he cries, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And Jesus does just that. Now, at this point, Peter is modelling for us one particular type of prayer. Writers of books on prayers call this arrow prayer for very obvious reasons. They call it arrow prayer. It's a quick, desperate cry to God to help. It sort of reminded me a bit like a very expensive box of chocolates because it's full of quality and full of worth. They are utterly sincere, these arrow prayers, utterly sincere. And they are also a world away from how I often find myself praying, where my thoughts wander off and my mind is not fully concentrated. These are indeed utterly sincere like Hannah's prayer was. Hannah's prayer was utterly sincere, wasn't it? That's why we read that story, because she was really praying deep down from her, her, her very being. This was herself praying. And Eli, of course, thought she was drunk. Now, in my experience with the arrow prayers that I have prayed in my life, I have almost always been heard by God. My most heartfelt ones have usually concerned times of prolonged pain, and I've cried out to God, and he has saved me from it. And I'm sure you can add many, many examples from your own lives when you have prayed an arrow prayer, and God has heard you. So that's Peter's utterly sincere arrow prayer. Lord, save me, he says, and Jesus does just that. I was listening the other day to a scrap of Desert Island Discs as I was motoring back from Tesco's in the car. And the castaway, to my surprise, was that most amazing 
man, some would say foolhardy man, Bear Grylls. Have you ever watched him on the television doing extraordinary things? Mm -hmm. Foolhardy, I think, perhaps. Not amazing. Now, Bear is a Christian, and he made no secret of it on the programme to the presenter, which must have been a challenge for him, mustn't it? But he also spends his life and earns his living doing physically challenging things in very inhospitable places. The interviewer, who was a lady, commented on a picture that she had of him crawling over a small, wobbly aluminium ladder straddling a deep crevasse on the approach to Everest. But it really made me laugh, because all he did was to laugh and say that she reminded him of his mother. That's all he said. However, this story too is about challenge, isn't it? That's the title. When God seems to ask the impossible. I remember reading a very challenging Christian book with an extraordinary title. I can't remember what was in the book, but I can remember the title. It's lived with me for years. And the title was this. If you want to walk on the water, you have to get out of the boat. If you want to walk on the water, you have to get out of the boat the boat. That's it in a nutshell, isn't it? When God calls you to do something scary, do it. When he calls you to do something scary, do it. Get out of the boat and you will find, as Peter did, that the water actually holds you up. Maybe that he's calling you to go somewhere different or to mend a broken relationship or to stick at what you're doing now when you're on the point of giving up, perhaps. Or to concentrate on your spiritual life in Lent. Or if you've never ever given your life to God, to do it now, today. And for us here at Linfield URC, we all have a challenge to invite people on our missionary weekend. And that's not easy. I don't enjoy doing it. I know you don't either. We've got to get out of that particular boat and walk on the water. But the central message for all of this is that we have to obey when he calls. We have to get out of that boat. I well remember being very impressed with my own mother and father in the way they responded to God's challenge to them on one particular occasion. My father was a congregational minister in charge of a large Christian social outreach in the slums of Bristol. And when war started, the bombs came raining down on the slums because of their proximity to the railway line and to the heavy industry there. My father felt that God was calling him to leave his comparatively safe house in the suburbs and to move into rented accommodation in the slum just so that he could be near to his people. And because my mother also rose to the challenge, she went too with two little girls and was the youngest of them, to be with him. And I also remember her telling me how scared my father was when they lived through their first bombing raid in the comparatively safe suburbs. And they had to, they, then my father had to think about going down to live where it was infinitely, infinitely more dangerous. They both certainly got out of the boat on that occasion, didn't they? So what boat? Is God calling you and me to get out of this morning? What boat? Only God and you, only God and I, know the answer to that question. If you want to walk on the water, 
you have to get out of the boat. Do you ever watch nature programmes on the television? I remember being very struck once by uh, one about penguins, which showed a vast, vast penguin colony with thousands of baby penguins lounging about all over the place whilst their parents went off to fish. Now, when their parents came back, they had to locate their one little chick. And they had to locate it by the sound of its voice, which I think is a totally awesome feat. I don't know how they do it. But the mother and the father penguin knew how their chick sounded, and the chick knew, apparently, how they sounded as well. And it's the same in this story. Look again at verse 27. Jesus says, Take courage, it is I, be not afraid. And the disciples recognise his voice. His voice. Now those same words appear in all the accounts we have of this story, in Matthew, Mark and in John. Matthew, John and Peter, whose reminiscences lie behind Mark, have lived for months just listening to Jesus' voice. They've heard him teach. They've chatted with him over meals. He's been with them 24-7. And it's his voice that reassures them now. Now, it's not a ghost. It's really him. The phantom form speaks with his unmistakable voice. And the point at issue here is that when it comes to crunch time in our lives, when God is asking us to do the impossible, and we wing that arrow prayer to Jesus for help, we have to be able to recognise his voice. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? If, like me, when all is going well and life's a bed of roses, doesn't happen often, but it does sometimes, I tend to get slack in my Christian observances. But I need to go on tuning in to the voice of God at that time too, so that when trouble and challenge come, he's not a stranger to me. What did Jesus say in John's Gospel? My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. The disciples had learned to love and trust Jesus during those long months of living with him so that when he told Peter to do something utterly outrageous, he didn't hesitate, but he hopped nimbly out of the boat. It's the sort of trust and close companionship meant is well illustrated by these two pictures. Here you see Lily, who is the white great Dane, who is blind, completely blind, and her friend, the grey Great Dane, you try saying those three words fast, the grey Great Dane, who is called Madison. And it's Madison's job in life to keep Lily next to him, at home, when they're out for walks, wherever they are, to keep her safe. Lily sticks close to Madison, and in that place, she finds her security. Those are lovely pictures, aren't they? But that's modelling for us how close we have to stay to God. 
We come now to a facet of this story which I'm sure a lot of you will have reminded yourself of in the opening minutes of this sermon. It's the answer to the question, what went wrong with Peter? What went wrong with him? Is that one of the th things you've discussed with your person sitting next to you? What went wrong with him? Why did he sink after he'd started so brilliantly to walk across the waves? Well, the Bible has a curious phrase in verse 30. I wonder if you noticed it. You probably didn't. You're too used to reading it. The verse reads, when he saw the wind. When he saw the wind. Now, you can't see wind, can you? You can only see its effects. In fact, some later manuscripts have at this point, when he saw the wind boisterous. That's the authorised version's translation. <clears throat> I think what Matthew means is that Peter, looking round, saw the effects of the wind on the sea, seething all about him. And it's worth noting here, this is just a point of interest more than anything else, it's worth noting here that this bit of the story doesn't appear in Mark's Gospel, which of course is really Peter's Gospel. And some commentators think that the reason is that Peter was ashamed of his lack of faith, so he actually left that bit out when he told Mark the story. Be that as it may, the fact remains that it was when Peter took his eyes off Jesus that he began to sink. When he took his eyes off Jesus and looked at the wind that he began to sink. But isn't it wonderful what Jesus does? He doesn't say to Peter, as you or I might have said, well, you can jolly well swim back to the boat now for being such a doubting disciple. You swim. I'll get in and you can follow me afterwards. Now he reaches out his hand, doesn't he? And he catches him. And they both climb into the boat. And along the way, Jesus rebukes Peter, calling him little faith. Almost perhaps in a gentle attempt to reassure him. The Greek, actual Greek word used there is a very interesting one. It's oligopisti. And it's like a, a little wry pet name as you would call a little child who was biting their fingernails, you'd say, oh, come on, little warrior. Jesus is calling Peter little faith. I think it's really so endearing, that little touch to the story. Even so with us, it's when we take our eyes off Jesus, isn't it, that the doubts begin to come and the wind and the waves of our impossible situations, they begin to overwhelm us. Because there's not a person alive who at some time or other hasn't doubted that he was actually doing what God wanted him to do, I want us to see that hand stretched out to lift us up and to save us. Listen to Isaiah 58. When you will call and you, then you will call and the Lord will answer you. You will cry for help and he will say, Here I am. You will cry for help. And God will say, here I am. That's a wonderful verse for a promise, isn't it? Hang on to it today. Hang on if you're facing a challenging situation, because those words are just for you. Now, what was the effect on the disciples in the boat? What was the effect? Well, yes, they worshipped, didn't they? And that has to be our reaction too when God does something extraordinary for us. Mark has a comment on this story, which Matthew doesn't make, which is very, very interesting. He says in Mark 6, 52, they, that's the disciples, were utterly astounded 
For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand about the loaves. Now that's obviously a later analysis the disciples made of their own feelings on that night, isn't it? Had they understood all the creative, powerful energy which was responsible for feeding 5,000 plus people, they would not have been surprised that Jesus could walk on the water, would they? His actions were consistent with each other. The fact reminds me too, to get to know the manner in which God works, so I will recognize his handiwork when I see it. Then I too will worship more often. Finally, let's broaden out the scope of the story just a little. Some commentators take the story one stage further than we've been looking at and see the storm as examples of difficulties in life. I came across a lovely quotation from the Dutch spiritual teacher Henri Nouwen, now sadly dead. During a very troubled period in his life, he wrote the following as an instruction to himself. This is what he said. He says, you wonder what to do when you feel attacked on all sides by seemingly irresistible forces, waves that cover you and want to sweep you off your feet. Sometimes these waves consist of feeling rejected, feeling forgotten, feeling misunderstood. Sometimes they consist of anger, resentment, or even the desire for revenge. Sometimes of self-pity and self-rejection and fear of circumstances. These waves make you feel like a powerless child abandoned by its parents. What are you to do? And he answers his own question. Make the conscious choice to move the attention of your anxious heart away from these waves and direct them to the one who walks on them and says, it's me, don't be afraid. Keep turning your eyes to him and go on trusting that he will bring peace to your heart. Look at him and say, Lord, have mercy. Say it again and again, not anxiously, but with confidence that he is very close to you and will put your soul to rest. So let this story challenge us to get out of the boat, to shoot our arrow prayers to God and to live so close to him that we recognise his voice at all times. And let us also remember that the God who has redeemed us so gloriously by sending his son to die on the cross will not leave us to drown in the waves. No, he will come to us saying, It is I, be not afraid.